Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Ireland in the mid-1800s, not a particularly happy or pleasant time. Uh, it was the period of the Great Hunger, also known as the Great Famine, outside of Ireland, known colloquially perhaps as the Irish Potato Famine. And between, well, a handful of years from 1845 to 1849, something like 25% of the country either died or emigrated. Uh, it's changed Ireland significantly in many ways, but Irish cinema has perhaps not dealt with the story of The Great Hunger in much detail until recently. One of the films screening at the Irish Film Festival, online at irishfilmfestival.com.au, is the debut feature film from writer-director Tom Sullivan. The film's called Arroch, or Monster in English. Uh, It's filmed predominantly in Irish, and uh, its director and writer, Tom Sullivan, joins us on the line now. Tom, thanks for joining us. Hello, how are you? Very well, very well indeed. I've had the pleasure of watching your film uh, earlier this week, and literally no sooner had I finished watching it than I jumped online to do a little bit of reading about it, only to discover that literally about an hour previously, Arach had been selected by the Irish Film and Television Academy as Ireland's entry for the 2021 Oscars Best International Feature Film category. So congratulations, that must be a great Thank delight. Thank you very you. much. Yeah, it's been crazy. A couple of days, actually. Um, I... I I was really wasn't expecting the reception that we've gotten over here. We were all we were all over the news, and I've been getting texts and messages from people I haven't heard of in twenty years. So yeah, it's been really lovely. And my mother, my mother thinks I'm the best boy now. <laughs> well, which perhaps <laughs> makes up for the fact that you what quit studying a, a fairly perhaps a stage career in what earth sciences to become a filmmaker. <laughs> Yeah, that was. A, I mean, they were really, they were really happy after putting me through college, and then I came to them and said, "I'm going to try make my way as an actor first of all, and in in this crazy, ridiculous career that I've chosen." So yeah, I've made it up to them. I'm curious to know why you decided to make your debut feature film not only about the events of uh, the Great Hunger, but in microcosm, uh, the impact on uh, not just uh, a particular village, but a particular family, a particular man. So that in itself is a, is a fascinating choice, but also why you wanted to make a film about the events of the Great Hunger at all. It's had a huge emotional and cultural impact on Ireland for over a hundred years and more, but it feels like it's something that Ireland culturally has not yet come to grips with. It's only recently yeah. that we've begun to see films and uh, and novels exploring the topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, it has been explored by playwrights in the past, I mean, on stage and in songs and stories, but not in film as much. I mean, Black 47 came out. It was a film that came out a couple of years ago by Lance Daly, and that was the first feature uh, to be set in the time. Um, so it seems, but it seems like, it seems like we're ready to deal with it now or to, or to look at it. I mean, to answer your question, I mean, I, I decided it, what started for me, the journey started for me as, 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 a, as a filmmaker and a, as a storyteller. I like to begin with, you know, with a character who has some kind of trauma or something that he or she is dealing with. Um, I always find that puts flesh on the bones of characters early on because I believe that we all, as human beings, suffer trauma when, you know, 
you know, different levels of trauma, but it's all relevantly strong to us. So I think we're all traumatized. I think our parents traumatize all of us. And I think I'm traumatizing my kids right now. <laughs> so I think we begin uh, as, as traumatized individuals. And that's how I get into a story first. So I began with an image of, of, of a guy in isolation, an isolation uh, on the West Coast, a fisherman who had, who had basically cut himself off from his community and had isolated himself on an island. But that's where the story began. And then because I, I have a huge affinity with the, with the place, uh, with the west of Ireland and Litter Mullan, where the film is shot on the west coast, it has always been a very evocative place for me. Uh, I think the famine came, started to creep into the story after that. And then what that opened up was a kind of a fascinating um for me, what was fascinating about it was uh, the more I read and the more I learned about the famine, the more I discovered that Ireland as an individual, if you were to look at Ireland as a person, um, Ireland, modern Ireland's childhood trauma is the famine. And we as a nation have been trying to deal with that and to process that ever since. And in a lot of ways, I find, you know, when I was researching it as well, that like anecdotal evidence is quite thin on the ground about the famine. Um, there's very little written down um, from from the people who suffered this. And I think there were a lot of things that happened that people just never spoke of again. And after the famine, um, people, you know, and I, you know, I heard, I've, I've read stories about people who would have spoken to their grandparents who would have been alive during it and how they just clammed up and didn't talk about it because I think people... There was, there's a lot of shame, a lot of shame around this, and I think we have, have that shame has been passed along the line to us, and I think indeed it, it, it kind of um, facilitated the, um, you know, the, the, the kind of insurgence then of the clergy and the Catholic Church on Ireland then into the, into the early uh, 20th century, and also the, the, the institutional abuse and everything that was, you know, we were good at keeping secrets in Ireland. And I think uh, we are slowly starting to to kind of, um, to, um, we're slowly starting to um, open that up and, um, yeah, starting to talk about it. Last year I had the very great pleasure of spending several days in Connemara on the west coast of Ireland. It's a stark landscape, but a beautiful landscape. And your cinematographer yeah. has caught that so beautifully in the film. It's The film is bleak on one level, but it's a, a beautifully bleak film. Can you talk to us about the challenge of filming in such a, a remote and rugged landscape, particularly one that is regularly swept by storms off the Atlantic? Yeah, so we had... Um I was really lucky. I've worked with, uh, basically, uh, incredibly fortunate to work with uh, Kate McCullough, who is an incredible cinematographer. And I was lucky enough to work with her about five or six years ago on, on a short uh, TV film that we did. And she went on then and, and has gone from strength to strength. And we have kept up our friendship. And then when when it came around to doing this, she came on board. And what Kate did was she managed to shoot the film in a gritty, flinty kind of way that really um, that really adds to an authenticity to adds an authenticity to how the film looks. And also, when we were looking for the location, um, I mean, I wanted to shoot the West Coast for the light and stuff, but you know, a lot of the West Coast of Ireland is, is very beautiful and very pretty. But what we were looking for was more stark beauty as opposed to pretty. We were trying to avoid that. So, 
So, you know, we first all along the coast, we went up to Mayo, up to the Ackle Islands, and then Ackle Island, then we came down to Connemara, and a lot of Connemara, uh, there's a lot of modernity in Connemara, but then when, when you get out to Littermullan where it's shot, the landscape suddenly becomes very hard and bony. And when I say bony, I mean you can literally see the bones of the earth as in the rocks are all breaching the soil and they're everywhere. And when you watch the film, that look for me was just did so much of the storytelling for me. The minute the minute I stepped out onto the place, it was um it, it was incredibly uh, evocative and, and just I knew it was in the right place. And the weather, I mean I say this now, but I, I'm I'm incredibly fortunate when it comes to weather. I always say that, um, and we did get hit by four storms, but luckily enough, we had some weather cover, which is when you shoot indoors, um, and we managed to just be able to avoid the storms. And the days we had planned to go out on the sea just miraculously just kind of worked out for us. So I think the gods were with us. It's the only way I can describe it. I wanted to ask one of the other challenges that struck me watching the film was the challenge personally faced by your lead actor who plays the character, the central character of Coleman Sharkey, through whose eyes we experience the the traumatic events of the famine. Uh, There are scenes in which he looks frighteningly gaunt, his shoulder blades, I I swear you could almost cut something with them, they're so pronounced and so Mm. sharp. I would imagine that he voluntarily agreed to lose weight rather than you demand it's a challenge for any director to be too strict with their actors. But he's also immersing himself in freezing water, for example. It, it looked like it must have mm. been, for him personally at times, a physically gruelling shoot. Yeah, Don Haley plays the, plays the lead character, Coleman. And um, the story with Donal was that I worked with Donal again on, 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 a, on a film with, um, with Kate shooting years before. Donal, since then, he was in his early 20s. He went off to live in L.A. and New York and had kind of, he'd, he'd pursued the acting for a long time, but he had gotten to a point where when I approached him about Aroft, he was kind of thinking of moving away from us because he had done his time in New York and LA and he was finding it quite difficult. And um, and when he was back in Ireland, I met up with him. And, you know, Donald's a big guy, like he was 16 stone when I met him. And I gave him the script and I had kind of wrote it with him in mind. And when he read it, instead of jumping to us, uh, it's a lead part. And he, he was hesitant because, and the reason why is I said, look, Tom, if I do this, this is a massive responsibility for me because it's a story set where I'm from. It's about my people. And also, you know, as, as we discussed, you know, because we didn't have that much money to make the film, from the onset, when I was rising, I knew I was going to have to tell the story of the famine, not with crowds of people getting on famine ships or starving people outside workhouses. Um, it was going to be through this one person. So we literally had to see the effects of the famine on Donald. So he knew that it was going to be a huge physical and emotional journey for him. And indeed, like what he did, um, so he lost four stone in four months. He dropped down to about 10. I think he ended up under 10 stone in the end and um, he was so dedicated that when somebody arrives I mean it was a tough enough shoot and I had, I had to ask a lot of my cast other cast and crew but when somebody like Donal arrives it's so wonderful because the arguments dissipate very quickly if, if your art department is arguing about something and you can simply turn around and say this guy's basically starved himself almost to death and you're arguing with me about a tax roof on a house like come on we can do this you know if he can do it we can do it and it just, he just brought this, he brought, it brought this uh, kind of level of 
determination and uh, it gave the film a momentum and, and I think uh, he really brought something special to us and I will be eternally grateful for him for that. As a final question, given that we started by uh, talking about the fact that the film uh, has been nominated as Ireland's Oscar entry in the, the best foreign language category, shooting the film in Irish, was that always a decision from the get-go or did that come later once you'd settled on the idea of the character whose story you wanted to tell? Yeah, it was always going to be in Irish. Um, I, like, because basically the, um, the, the, film, the film grew uh, alongside a, um, an initiative that the Irish language channel here, TG Cahar, had set up as well with, with Screen Ireland. And their mission was to create Irish language feature content for cinema. Um, so we kind of developed it in hand in hand with them, and so so part of the mission was to create a, a piece of a piece of con- not content. Obviously, it's not contemporary, but modern cinema in Irish that will travel. And um, so, so the Irish language is always there. But also, I've worked a lot in Irish myself. Um, I was part of a. Um, I grew up in Dublin, but I was part of an initiative back in the 70s where a lot of Irish language schools opened up because the language is quite, it's, it's, it's on its, uh, it's hanging on by its fingertips at the moment. Um, so, uh, but it's, there seems to be a resurgence. So this is an, incre- it's an incredible, um, when we talk about the Oscar, the, um, the fact that we're going on a world stage like that with the language is, uh, is, is really humbling for me um, that I've managed to be part of that. So, yeah, so the language is massively important and couldn't have done it any other way, really, uh, given where it's set and the actors who... All the actors in it would be all Irish language speakers from, from home, as in they would have been brought up speaking Irish and not learned in school. So that was also something I insisted upon because the authenticity of that, I think, comes across. It absolutely does. It's a, As I said, it's a, a stark but beautiful film. I very much enjoyed watching it. Thank the, you very much. The film is called Arocht Monster. As I said, screening is part of the Irish Film Festival of Australia and accessible online until the 29th of October. Tickets are 10 to $15 or you can buy a pass uh, for three films for $35. Uh, uh, and you can screen online at www.irishfilmfestival.com.au. I've been talking with writer and director Tom Sullivan. Tom, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, man. And uh, I would hopefully see you soon. If you're ever in Ireland, look me up. Will do. All the best. All right, man. Bye-bye. Earlier this week, Creative Partnerships Australia presented the annual Creative Partnerships Awards, which acknowledge and celebrate the role of philanthropy in the arts. Joining us to tell us more is the CEO of Creative Partnerships Australia, Fiona Menzies. Fiona, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Richard. These awards, one of the things that fascinates me about them is that, yes, they acknowledge the important role that philanthropy, private giving, plays in Australia to support a range of organisations around the country. But in doing so, I'm imagining that it's also perhaps your hope and that of your colleagues at Creative Partnerships Australia, that it perhaps gently encourages other people not only to think about the importance of philanthropy, but to think about becoming philanthropists themselves. Absolutely. It definitely plays those dual roles. I think it's really important to acknowledge and celebrate um, the contribution that some people have made, but we also do like to think that um, by getting some uh, more general knowledge in the community about what these people have done, that other people might feel inspired themselves. And and it's funny, you know, several of, 
of the people over the years when we've been giving these awards have said, I don't like the word philanthropy because it does have that connotation of being something that only very well-off people do. They often refer to it as giving and they often also talk a lot about how engaged they are with the organisations that they support and that that is equally as important to them as as the funds that they can provide. Sorry, just to jump in there, that notion of giving, to use that word, it can begin often with very small amounts. When we think of art philanthropy, we might think of somebody donating a million dollars or two million dollars or five million dollars perhaps uh, and then having a, a building named after them, a gallery, a theatre or so forth. But giving in the arts can literally begin with maybe a $50 donation a month, for example, which builds up to a, a more significant amount over 12 months and over a longer time can grow even more substantially. Absolutely. And we always talk about people giving within their own capacity. And I think, you know, one of the... Some of the, the winners this year or the recipients this year of our Philanthropy Leadership Award were Maureen and Tony Wheeler. And I know that Maureen and Tony have always been givers even before they became significantly better off through the sale of their business. But they, as a principal, always gave a percentage of their profits to charity. And I think that's something that's also quite common among the, the people that are the recipients of these awards is that they often do start off quite modestly and then when, as their capacity grows, their giving grows. The wheelers are a fascinating example because, yes, when they, in the early days of Lonely Planet, before they sold it to the BBC, they were giving and supporting things like clean water supplies for small disadvantaged communities, for example. Over time, their giving has grown to support the likes of the Australian opera staging of the Ring Cycle and the creation of the Wheeler Centre here in Melbourne. So through them, we can certainly see that spectrum and the way that giving can grow and change over time. In terms of the awards themselves, this year. Let's quickly acknowledge some of the other recipients. The Arts Leadership Award, for example, which instead of being given to people who are philanthropists necessarily, it's given to people who have encouraged giving and encouraged and strengthened the connections between the arts and philanthropy in Australia. This year, that award was given to Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield AO, the co-artistic directors of the Adelaide Festival. I think what's really interesting about them is what they've done, and I think this is a good tip for anybody out there thinking they might want to find someone who wants to give to their artistic endeavours, is what Rachel and Neil have done is said, we've got a really big vision for this festival and our vision is bigger than what the government is able to provide. So we need to find other people who want to invest in our vision. And I think as a general comment, I would say in my experience and with my conversations with donors, they really like a big vision. I think sometimes in the arts we feel like we should only ask for the bare minimum. But actually, I think donors really respond to the big vision. They want to be part of that big vision. And I think that's what Rachel and Neil have done in Adelaide. And that's why they have been the recipients of this award this year. We've mentioned the Wheelers, but what about the Arts Visionary Award, which from its even from its title alone evokes the idea of people who are not only contributing to a long-term vision of the importance of the arts in Australia, but playing an active role in supporting that vision? Yeah, so this is a new category that we introduced last year, and the first recipient of that award last year was John Caldor, 
This year, that visionary award has been given to two separate people. So firstly, Lady Primrose Potter. Most of you would know that she's been a big supporter of the, the Australian Ballet over a long period of time, but she's also supported, and this is quite separate to the support from the Ian Potter Foundation. Lady Potter personally has supported numerous organisations around things she's really passionate about. You know, opera is another one, but she really gets in there and does so much more than just give money. You know, she's a real confidant of the company and she has views unashamedly and <laughs> she's happy to share them and she's really very much a part of the companies that she supports. The other recipients of the Arts Visionary Award this year were Bailey and Sarah Meyer and their giving has been really interesting over many decades but also always I think what's what's really significant about their giving is that it's always where it can make a difference. So a couple of examples would be some time ago and then more recently, some time ago they supported the building of the Education Centre at Heidi, which meant that school groups could come to Heidi Museum and have somewhere to do their education other than just the, the museum buildings themselves. And they've done a similar thing down at McClellan Gallery. And these are things that really move the dial for those organisations. It means they can they can really increase those education opportunities at their at those institutions. And I think that's something that they've always tried to do through their giving. For full details about all the recipients of the Creative Partnerships Awards 2020, people can jump online, creativepartnershipsaustralia.org.au. But Fiona, I wanted to talk about the role that Creative Partnerships Australia plays in supporting arts organisations and individual artists to attract philanthropy and private giving. Because as we said, philanthropy is not just something that is applicable to the major cultural institutions and organisations, NG for example, currently uh, launching a major philanthropic campaign to build NGV Contemporary, as announced earlier this week. But for small arts organisations and even for individual artists, I understand that Creative Partnerships Australia not only provide assistance in that regard, but you will also offer what workshops and upskilling in this area as well, so that people can be more confident about trying to raise funds for an arts event or an arts organisation. That's exactly right, Richard. So we've got state managers who are based around the country in each capital city and they can certainly provide you with advice and coach you on how to do fundraising. But we also have programs. We have a suite of, of workshops, webinars, so forth. And we also have some funding programs. But unlike other funding programs, our fundraising programs are really designed around as you say, that upskilling of organisations or individuals. We have the Plus One Match Funding Program for organisations and for individual artists or small groups of artists, we have a program called Match Lab, which does provide a small amount of match funding. But prior to that, you go through a workshop, sort of business development kind of workshop that helps you understand your business model and what the options for you are and has a lot of really good advice from industry specialists. So I really encourage people to go to our website and find out more about those programs and talk to your state manager 
before applying to any of them as well. I would also certainly encourage any artist or arts organisation member listening to the program at the moment to go and check out the website as well, creativepartnershipsaustralia.org.au. Given the increasing challenge of obtaining arts funding, particularly federally, but also state by state, the role of private giving is increasingly important and in growing, not necessarily exponentially, but growing significantly in Australia as well. Yeah, and I think in terms of if you're an arts practitioner, it's really about not putting all your eggs in one basket, isn't it? By all means, keep applying for the government funding, but this is just a way to provide yourself with some alternative sources of of revenue and and funding. And and you should be looking for a mix because then if any one of them isn't there at any moment, you've got the other one to rely on. As we said, go to creativepartnershipsaustralia.org.au for information about Match Lab, which supports artists and artist groups to build fundraising skills, and also about Plus One, which supports not-for-profit arts and cultural organisations to develop and run more effective fundraising campaigns and boost their fundraising skills. I've been chatting with Fiona Menzies, the CEO of Creative Partnerships Australia. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Triple R. Hetty Perkins is a curator with over 30 years' experience, and a key part of that experience is contextualising and celebrating and spotlighting the work of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art and artists. She joins us to talk about the new exhibition at Tarawara Museum of Art, Looking Glass, Judy Watson and Yawani Scarce. Hetty, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you, Richard, and good morning. This exhibition, there's so much to talk about here, and let's begin with the fact that after such a tumultuous year, it must be a delight for you and also for the team at Tarawara to finally be opening the doors and putting the exhibition on show to Australian audiences. But it's already had a previous life in the UK, I believe. Yes, it has. Look, it has been a very challenging year. (laughs) The show actually opened in the UK at the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, just when COVID was really picking up in the UK and particularly around London and Birmingham. So it felt like you were sort of dodging bullets a little bit, <laughs> but we were so happy to be there and it was wonderful to have Judy and Yuani there. Yuani was just starting her residency with the University of Birmingham and Icon Gallery and Judy's work that she'd made for the show was installed there and it looked absolutely beautiful and she'd already... Judy had been to the UK the year before and been doing a research trip, so it was just really amazing for her to be able to sort of show that work in Birmingham. And, of course, then to bring it home, it's uh, with the lifting of restrictions, you know, it's literally like a breath of fresh air is blowing through all our museums and galleries. Now they're open again, and we're really excited that we'll be able to show Judy's works and selected works from previous works by Judy and Ioani's selection of previous works as well, but also a new commission that she's made just for this show. So it's it's a really, really exciting moment. The exhibition itself has been described as a love song and a lament for country, an alchemy of 
elemental materiality of earth, water, fire and air, but with also, I would imagine, not just an alchemy of elemental elements, but an alchemy of emotion as well. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, a lot of the work that Judy and Yuani do is about their personal family histories. And as we know, in common with many of our members of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, there are stories of stolen generations, dispossession, disenfranchisement, massacre. As we know, there's a very tragic history in this country. But the way that they're creating work and the way they're responding to those stories is, it's almost, I think we've also described it as, it's like a tender trap. You know, the works are very very beautiful, you know, tactile, seductive works. But once you dig a little bit deeper or look a little bit closer, if you like, you can really see those stories that they're talking about, those narratives and histories, and begin to understand them more. And I think they're very persuasive in that way, the works. The title, Looking Glass, talk to us about its symbolism of those words. The phrase, through the looking glass, from Lewis Carroll, for example, can describe a a world that's topsy-turvy or upside down. There's also the chance to reflect not only on what we see, but perhaps reflecting on the past as well and the way it communicates with the present. Yes, that's right. There's a lot in that question. Um, <laughs> I think the, the sort of the main thing about through the looking glass, I mean, the idea, obviously, Ioana is working with glass, so that was one of the references. But also, you know, again, this idea of holding a mirror up, really, to sort of show people, you know, stories and histories and things that are very much part of our experiences of being Australians, but also things that have happened like Maralinga, for instance. You know, for a lot of younger people, that's probably some, you know, a phrase they've heard of, but they don't really understand what it means, potentially. And so it's great that Ioani's making these works that very viscerally engage, you know, with that history and what happened in this country. And again, it was a a great opportunity because of the works being shown, Ioani's and Judy's works being shown in the UK. It was really sort of taking these effects of colonisation, if you like, or these consequences of colonisation and sort of showing people back in the UK, you know, what happened here in this country. So very powerful way of sort of communicating those stories. But also I think it's very much about people being powerless, you know, with the Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland and all those associations, you know, people living in a world where all of a sudden the rules have changed, you know, you're either too big or you're too small, you just can't find a way to fit into this new society that you find yourself in. And I think that that's something that is very poignant and I think that Judy and Nuani both make these works that are very lyrical and so poetic, They've, they kind of have a sense of you know, there's a bit of there's sadness, you know, there's there's kind of a real sorrow about the experiences of our people. But also there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot to celebrate, you know, with Judy's works. It's really about talking and Yuan, it's about country and this connection to country and how much we love our country, all of our different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. And so these works in some ways being elemental are not only you know, they're about country, but they're of country and they're really for country, you know. So they're so talented, these two artists, and that's why I was so keen to bring them together, not only because of the materiality of the work, but the way there's this wonderful synergy of what they're talking about and what they're expressing in their works. In terms of that materiality, the the fact that Yuani is working with glass, for example, you've, you've mentioned Maralinga, a place in which the desert sand was literally fused into glass. So there's such a potent symbolism there in mm. the the objects that Yuani is choosing to to create and to 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 mould. 
Yes, that's right. Well, the work that she's made for Tarawara, which will be, you know, premiered at Tarawara, is, and indeed, you know, a lot of Judy's new works, it'll be the first time they've been seen in this country. But Ioani's work, Cloud Chamber, is a reference to the cloud that was created, the toxic radioactive cloud that was created at the breakaway site, which is one of the Maralinga bomb tests. It was the largest of them. And on that occasion, yes, the whole the desert, because of the intense heat, turned to glass. And it was just these incredible sheets of glass across the desert desert landscape and sort of almost look like a lake and there's you know photographic records of that occurring but also Yuani when she's visited that country you know which she has many times you know there's still the shards of that glass in the desert but also interestingly when they buried a lot of the materials and the trucks and the you know they scraped back a layer of earth and buried it because of its radioactive potential they then I think it's called a pro- through a process of invitrification they actually turned all of that toxic material into glass to contain the contamination. So, yes, there is a very literal reference that's very interesting with Yuani's work, but also with this cloud chamber, you know, this work that she's made, you know, you really can get an impression of the scale and the menace and the threat of the black mist, as they called it, that rolled across that Anangu lands. And Judy's work, she works across many mediums, so painting and printmaking, sculpture, as well as video and public art. Talk to us a little bit about some of the works that Judy's created for this exhibition. Yeah, well, one of them, again, which is a really lovely coincidence, I guess, in some ways, is that there's a work in the show that Judy and Yuani worked on together. Judy's work, but Yuani assisted when they were in residence together in Adelaide. And it's a number of ears, wax and resin ears that have been cast from actual people's ears that are nailed to the wall as an installation with these rusty nails. And that work is a reference to a historical anecdote that Judy discovered from her country where she says one of her visiting pastoralists or something came upon a settler's hut and he found no less than 40 pairs of blackfellas ears nailed to the wall and that was in Judy's country so those kinds of things are just obviously you know horrifying stories and I think it's really important that artists you know can bring them bring them into you know bring them into the light bring these stories to the fore so people can understand that history and and those incidences that happen because often of course these atrocities were committed under the cone of silence and often with the assistance or if not you know, collusion of, you know, authorities at the time. So, yes, so there's that that work, which is quite confronting and disturbing. But then she's got another series of works of objects called the Resistance Pins, where she's cast in bronze and also in porcelain, all of these wonderful, very delicate little objects that are based on sort of hat pins and other sewing objects or tools that women would have used. And so it's this idea of she's based it on a story of, I'm just forgetting the woman's name right now, but she was led the union movement in the early part of the 20th century and for women's suffrage and so on and when they were being charged at by police riding on horses mounted police she sort of this woman took her hat pin out and poked the horse and which made the horse rise up and threw off the you know the leader of who was leading the charge against these women and he broke his hip or something but so it was just I think that it's a very nice way of talking about how these works like Judy Nuani's, you know they're very as I said they're very beautiful and they're very engaging and compelling but you know they they have this very there's a sting in the tail you know there is it's a very pointed <laughs> pardon the pun <laughs> um <laughs> point that they're making and and I think that's what's something that's very interesting and I think 
Sorry, just to add to that, uh, one of the things about the show is that there are also video works by Judy. She's so well known as a painter and a printmaker. But I think what's great about this show is that we can see some of her, you know, installation work, working with objects and also creating uh, these three video works. So along with a whole series of really beautiful paintings. So it's a wonderful chance, I think, for people to see this collection of works by someone like Judy Watson, who is such an established artist. I mean, she's represented Australia at the Venice Biennale. She's undertaken too many residencies overseas to name. She's exhibited and collected so widely right around the world and to have her work there with Yuani, who's, you know, again, an artist of a very distinguished reputation, hasn't been making work for potentially as long, but to sort of see both of those artists in dialogue with such a significant body of work is a really wonderful opportunity. And, of course, Tarawara, it's a beautiful place, Wurundjeri country, and it's sort of a, all the planets seem to be lining up and with the lifting of restrictions, you know, it's a good omen. It absolutely is. For anybody who has not been out to the Tarawara Museum of Art before, located at 313 Healesville, Yarra Glen Road, just outside of Healesville, you can jump online, www.twma.com.au. The exhibition that we've been discussing with its curator, Hetty Perkins, is Looking Glass, Judy Watson and Ioani Scarce, which is showing from this Saturday, the 28th of November, through until the 8th of March at Tarawara Museum of Art, that website again, www.twma.com.au. Hetty Perkins, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Richard. Thank you. It has been a dark year, but do not fear because art is here to salve the wounds of 2020. We're into the home stretch, the last week of the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which is running through until the 29th, I do believe. I should have double-checked that date. Ah, yes, the 29th. Uh, I should have triple-checked that before I turned my microphone on, shouldn't I? Ah, such a professional. Anyway, two of the shows that are on in the final week of Melbourne Fringe, there's a bit of a connection between them. I'm joined by Lou and Jean Tong, who are going to talk to us about a couple of the works they're performing and collaborating on as well. Good morning to you both. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Jean, I'll start with you. You and Lou have collaborated on a few things in the past. You've written for Lou's show, Lou Wall's Drag Race, for example. You did the wonderful, wonderful musical together, Romeo is Not the Only Fruit. For Fringe this year, you've decided to do Cats, the movie, the musical, the production, the artist. Why are you taking the piss out of something that has already been (laughs) piss-taked to the ends of the earth and back? Well, I love the punch down, as you know. (laughs) I think when the pandemic hit, it was obviously really devastating seeing things get cancelled but there was I I think personally I did feel a sense of there is worse that could be happening and there's still a way to laugh at this in a way that is both that both acknowledges the pain of of people having shows cancelled and things closing down while at the same time absolutely taking the piss and so for Fringe we decided to make a mockumentary really leaning into the screen format about the futility of trying to put on theatre and I think the inherent pointlessness of cats sort of paired with that futility just allowed us to make something that was very frivolous, very silly, but also very, I think, in the spirit of independent theatre, making stuff with your friends and trying to use it as a way of, I guess, getting through the real pain of the time and hopefully when people watch it. The experience that I hope they get is complete entertainment, but also being able to recognise the the experiences and connect with the shared pain and pleasure of 
just putting something on. So, and we made our designers act, so that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just cruel. So I guess for, for this production, there's so many questions that immediately spring to mind, one of which is if Andrew Lloyd Webber's lawyers are listening. <laughs> but uh, obviously satire. Satire every step of the way. But the idea then is an amateur musical theatre production of Cats that has to be physically cancelled, pivot online, and the desperate and disastrous attempts to do so. Oh, yeah. We spent the whole 35-minute show failing to be able to put it on. Like, we get the physical show cancelled, and then we get catfished when we cast some actors online, and they all bail on us. (laughs) And then we end up, the four of us, myself and our designers, Rachel and James, we end up having to try and do it ourselves, but then... You know, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, let's just say it doesn't go well either. (laughs) (laughs) Lou, you're the co-creator and one of the performers in Cats, the movie, the musical, the production, the artist, but you're also (laughs) doing your own show, Lusical the Musical, which is a pop music comedy slash part stand-up, part song. I would say that it's part song, part online meme content. (laughs) If that's even a genre, I can claim that. Well, I think you may have just created a genre. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually completely pre-recorded and not live by any means. I kind of really delved into the online kind of YouTube-y TikTok medium. And I think it actually served the show really well. Like, I think... So it was actually served well by the pandemic, if that's even a thing. It certainly seems a logical response in some ways because trying to do a live show, streaming it, particularly on a fringe budget, an independent artist budget, all kinds of glitches can happen. So pre-recording a work makes absolute sense. And also, as you both said, leaning into the inherent nature of the medium you're working in. So this is not theatre that is taking place online. You've created hybrid works which are part youtube clip part live show yeah totally yeah and i think the fringe chat function that kind of runs alongside the shows is actually it's been really interesting watching that work quite well for a lot of stuff even pre-recorded works because i think what it showed is people have really missed connecting like the best part of theater as a theater maker is watching theater with your friends And I think the chat function really allowed people to just connect with others who are watching the show and creating, recreating that shared sense of community online. And I think that's been, yeah, really special. Lou, to explore the concept of Lucical the Musical a little bit more, it's about the anxiety around uncompleted to-do lists. Is that right? It is. Yeah, it kind of started as almost like a dare to myself. I've been writing to-do lists since I was five and um, I went back home last year in the summer when the bushfires were happening and my mum was making me clean out my old books and I found that I've been writing to-do lists and I've never actually completed a to-do list. So I kind of set this impossible task for myself where I said, how about I gather every to-do list I've made from 2002 to 2020. So when I'm 5 to 24, I go through all of them and I complete everything, you know? Maybe then I won't feel so behind in my life. (laughs) And then, you know, while simultaneously being in stage 4 lockdown and making it into a musical and a fringe show, uh, you know, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, it's certainly ambitious, if nothing else, but I'm also gobsmacked that you've retained lists that you made when you were 5 years old. There are definitely ones that have disintegrated, but I found them in almost every book I had for school. So like handwriting books, math 
books. I just always have these like little to-do lists that I've written everywhere. It's definitely a, almost a personality trait at this point. Jean, in terms of Cats, the movie, the musical, the production, the artist, does this also <laughs> draw... Thank you for saying it in small, every <laughs> single time. Uh, it's a, I always, it's a personal challenge. Yes, Lou may have to-do lists. I have the titles of shows. So, uh, <laughs> but Jean, is this also drawing on a childhood love of musical theatre, or were you horribly traumatised by Cats the musical at a young age? Look, I I did see Cats when I was five, which I do talk about. Oh, I did maybe we cut it. I saw it when I was five, and I didn't get it, but I did love the spectacle of it and I think there is something just re-watching Cat, illegal bootleg online uh, <laughs> and watching the film, I think what the film fails to recognise that the reason the stage show is so popular still, enduringly despite many <laughs> questionable choices, is that it's pure entertainment, it's complete spectacle and if you just lean into it, it doesn't have to make sense, it doesn't have much of a story but it is such theatre. It is absolute theatre, and just it, 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 the songs are so fun. I found a, a, an online community where people are huge fans of the show, and they create fan fiction and costumes and pretend to be the cat characters. And I think it's very easy to look down on it as not necessarily the most important cultural <laughs> event of our lifetime. Understatement. Um, <laughs> I, I personally hate it. So that dynamic between the both of us really created the world. <laughs> I, yeah, I just thought it was something about it being such a cornerstone of theatre in its embodiment of pure questionable and, and pleasure and enjoyment <laughs> and excess which we couldn't get by any means during lockdown, particularly in Victoria. I think, yeah, it just sort of felt like the right artefact to interrogate through the form of mockumentary and terrible, terrible jokes. To see both the shows that we've been talking about, Lucical the Musical and Cats the Movie the Musical, the production, the artist, you need to jump online, melbournefringe.com.au. They're both running from the 26th until the 29th of November, so from today through until Sunday. Cats, etc., etc., is on at 8pm, and Lucical the Musical is also on at 8pm. So you can't watch them... Well, you could watch them simultaneously on two different devices. It would be the mega mashup from hell, I suspect. I think Cats is at 7.30, oh, okay. but I should double check that now. My I media, release, back back my media release might be out of date. It's entirely possible media releases get updated and maybe I don't have the latest one. But go to the Melbourne Fringe website, melbournefringe.com.au, for details, including ticket prices, pay what you feel, for example. I think you should be paying $100 each per ticket, uh, <laughs> but that's just me. I've been chatting with Lou Wall and Jean Tong. It's been a pleasure having you both on the show. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Too. That was just in perfect unison. Well done. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 